Charter Podcast, Episode 11. Code Red for Humanity, Part 3. Renewable Energy, with Dr. Aoife Foley, a reader in the School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Hosted by me, Morris McCartney. In previous episodes in this series, we looked at how the IPCC report published this year shows we need to urgently move away from fossil fuel emissions if we're to have any chance of slowing already occurring climate breakdown. We then looked at one possible way of making the transition to clean power in the area of transport. But where are we going to get that power from? Well, in this episode, I talked to Dr. Aoife Foley to find out. My name is Dr. Aoife Foley. I'm a reader in Queen's, in um, Queen's University of Belfast in the School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Um, in terms of my work and my research, I've been 12 years in academia. I was 12 years in the private sector, where I work for multinationals, uh, predominantly in energy, telecoms and farm projects. And um, I did my PhD part time, uh, started in 2007, and I was working full time and had babies and got married and changed jobs. But I eventually graduated in 2011, which I think was good going. And um, I was uh, did my PhD in University College Cork um, with um, actually a Queen's graduate, um, Dr. Raymond McHugh. And then in terms of the research that I do, um, I do I do a lot of power systems. I do, um, you know, wind power integration. So I look at all the technology. So from um, heat pumps to hot water, storage tanks to um, storage heaters to air conditioning, chillers, electric vehicles. Um, I do unit commitment modeling, which is basically um, the grid balancing itself in terms of power generation. So it can be wind, it can be gas plant, it can be anything. Um, that's sort of what I do. I look at gas as well. So gas networks um, and another part of my work then as well as wind power forecasting and um, looking at uh, batteries and electric vehicles. Um, and fuel cells and electric vehicles and how they perform and things like that. So I sort of, it's the full gambit and I've been doing it for 12 years, really, in essence. It just sounds like you've got a, a quite a comprehensive um, overview of the whole clean power and the transition to clean power and the smart grid and all the, the rest of it. I wondered in the in context of Northern Ireland, how much of our, how much electricity have we got to, to do that? You know, how much clean electricity? Because obviously you can fuel uh, electric vehicles with dirty fuels as well. I mean, you know, so that you haven't really got much farther down the road towards clean transport if you're still using electricity that's generated with fossil fuels. I suppose um, in terms of the situation, we had a target of 40% renewable electricity consumption by 2020. And um, we actually achieved that early, that target. And that's, you know, it wasn't a difficult target to achieve in the first place. You know, people may say, oh, it was great, we achieved it. But wind turbines and wind farms are quite easy. Uh, once you have a site and you can develop it, and you have your planning permission and you have a grid connection, the technology speaks for itself. It's proven technology. Um, and in terms of, you know, other um, other forms, we're heavily dependent on, on, on natural gas. Um, we're too dependent on it, actually, because it's imported natural gas. And we've seen recently there with the price of natural gas increasing, it's going to affect um, heating prices for people who have natural gas. It's going to affect the commercial sector and the industrial sector who are who use a lot of gas. Some sectors use a lot of gas to so some industries. Um, and it will also then 
usually maybe nine to 10 months later, it'll hit the um, power system and electricity prices will go up because what happens is gas is booked and shipped typically a year in advance for electricity generation. Whereas for gas, um, for gas applications and for home use, it's, 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 it's a different market. So um, you, the, the impact of increasing gas prices is felt um, faster um, in, in that sector. Um, in terms of, you know, um, our other targets and where we're going and what we have is, I suppose, 84% of the, of the renewables we have in the power system are from wind. So wind is a big thing in Northern Ireland. We have about 4% then from solar energy. And then you have a few other bits from landfill gas, biogas and biomass. The problem with wind really for us is it's we, we don't have, you know, we've, we've the only storage plant really um, sort of the gold label storage plant on the island of Ireland is um, it's called Turlock Hill. And, you know, it's a pumped hydro station. And really for certain grid security activities, you need pump storage. We don't have pump storage in Northern Ireland. Now, there was sites looked at historically. But um, and I believe that a tunnel or two tunnels were built as part of a development plan for a um, pumped hydro um, storage plant, but it, it, it stopped its development. Um, and then we've what we've done is we've installed batteries. So there would have been up in Larne, there's the plant there where they have um, um, battery storage. And there's a few other people who are looking at battery storage and it's part of the DS3. So that's part of the services, ancillary services for the wholesale um, grid operator. So the ISM, the integrated single electricity market on the island of Ireland. But the challenge with batteries is they don't offer the same level of system security that say an, um, a fast responsive internal combustion gas engine will offer um, or what the pumped hydro plant will offer. So even though people will say, oh, we need loads of batteries, actually batteries are great, but they can only do certain things. So. It's, I suppose, the best way to sort of, it's like you're in your kitchen and you have different pots and pans. So the different pots and pans, you have a small pot, you have a steamer, you have a pressure cooker, you have a frying pan. They all do different activities. So I suppose the fast responsive gas turbine, that's like your frying pan to fry your egg. You know what I mean? It's going to be very fast. And then you're going to use your pressure cooker if you want something to cook a little bit faster in a bit, in a bit of pressure. But you could stick it in the oven and roast it and leave it there for nearly an hour and a half. So... That's the way to sort of look at the power system. There's all different parts to it and they all have a different role. And that's the thing about some of the solutions that people are proposing. They don't fully understand the power system in terms of the, the constraints that we're under because it's like a pipe. It's like a water pipe. You can only put so much electricity into the, into the network, onto the cable, down the line. And we've grid constraints and we've grid congestion over this. So it's just like a water network or it's like a road, you know, a busy traffic junction. Um, you can only get so much traffic through the junction when it's congested. And that's the issue we face with wind. We can only bring so much of it onto the system currently um, and we're spilling wind. So we're, we're, we're dumping some wind. That's the best way to describe it. Um, and people sure, will say, oh, we... In one way, you've, we've got more power than we know what to do with. Is, is, um, is what you're no, we're not actually. We, we, we actually, at, at the moment... We're actually, um, we have some grid security issues in terms of backup supply because what happened is certain plants are planned to be mothballed because they don't meet the large combustion plants directive. 
So there are regulations and guidance in terms to planting their age in the fleet. And you would have seen it in the Republic of Ireland there recently. They've said, you know, maybe data centres are an issue. We'll have to slow down with the data centres because we can't guarantee system security. So that's the difference between the power system and a road network and a water network. When there's an issue, you know, um, there's an issue because there's a supply and demand issue or there may be a shortage of plant. And even a simple thing, you could have three plants offline at the same time and the wind doesn't come on the day you expect it. So it's it's not a case of bringing all wind onto the system. You know, gas, natural gas is going to play a big role um, in the power system up as far as 2050. And anybody who says it's not, they're, you know, they're, they're living in a bit of a fantasy planet. And um, unfortunately, we have to be pragmatic because people have to work and people have to heat their homes and factories have to operate. You know, there's a lot of technology out there. But the problem is, in, you know, if you look at the distribution system, it's, 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 it needs an upgrade. It hasn't been upgraded in 50 years. The transmission system is sort of the, 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 the wealthy relation of the poor, the poor cousin. Mm. So the poor cousin is the distribution system. It doesn't get a lot of investment. Um, you know, you go to people's homes. We talk about smart meters. Some people in, in their homes, their meter boxes are 20, 15, 30 years old, 40 years old. You know what I mean? Now they've been updated, but you still go in, you see an old fuse box. Um, and, all of that kind of equipment, there's no business case. So when people talk about electric vehicle charging, there's no business case really for rolling out electric vehicle charging because, you know, how's it going to pay? How's the charger going to pay for itself? They need a new meter. Who's going to pay for the installation? So, you know, we have a lot of hard decisions to make because what happens is the government makes money from tax on fuel. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's, so how do we balance the books? And that's the problem of the power system. So not alone in the power system, but the finances, the financials and the cash flow behind the power system. How do we make it balance? And it's not a case. It's not a case of just basically people using less energy. OK, that's not how we work as human race. You know, um, it's, it's about energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things out there that we could make more efficient using simple improvements. But the problem is you know, um, it, there needs to be a government sort of um, framework to do it. But the problem is regulation and how do we regulate? That's the, really the key challenge. There's no silver bullet solution. You know what I mean? There's no one shoe's going to fit all. It's going to be different for different sectors. And what people think in one sector, we can electrify everything. If you speak, speak to people in the electricity sector, they well, actually, you can't, you know? Um, and that's the different disciplines. And I, I, I suppose from my own background, my undergraduate degree is in civil engineering. I'm a master's in transport and my PhD is in power systems. So I'm coming with three different voices and I work in mechanical engineering in Queens. So it, it has to be interdisciplinary. And that's something we're missing. It's the communication between the disciplines and the fields in engineering. We're very different. We work in very different sort of ways. How far can we get? How much can we? I reckon, um, you know, we probably get up to around 70, 80 percent. Um, you know, if we get to 80 percent and we are more pragmatic in our technology that we have in the home, in the distribution system, in the transmission system, um, in using CHP better, in, in um, you know, smart metering, um, the electric vehicle charging, electric storage heaters, all of those technologies play a part But at the back of it is we need inertia. So this is where then another type of fuel so we can have, 
we can have green ammonia and green hydrogen come into the system um, because those two are actually very interesting in that you can use them in an internal combustion engine. So in other words, you can use them in a power station and they can be your inertia. So we're never going to get completely away from, you know, some sort of gas or fuel, liquid fuel. Um, as I said already, batteries will get us some of the way there, but they're not going to get us all the way there. Um, so you need I, a sort of a backstop as the... Well, it's, it's, well, it's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's V is equal to IR. You can only do so much and you have to maintain your frequency. So your hertz. So the last thing you want is for the power to be bouncing around in the system, you know? Tell me this, what if I, I think sometimes we tend to fixate on sort of the big industrial kind of solutions. You know, you talked about people's houses there and the, the meters that they have. What if we were to move towards um, every house being its own sort of little power generator, you know, and, and having obviously there are some people who've got solar panels. Um, they, they actually, I tell you what, that's a very interesting sort of statement that you've made because it sounds very easy. But in actuality, um, what you'll do is you'll cannibalise the wholesale market and you'll cannibalise the retail market. And what will happen is, well, first of all, anyway, the distribution grid wouldn't be up to it. And we have case studies already, whereas in Spain, the government decided to introduce a lot of rooftop solar. Um, and that resulted in, uh, it affected the wholesale market price. Um, it affected um, transmission system, it affected the distribution system, and in the end, the Spanish government decided they were introducing a solar tax. So if you say to somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm going to incentivize you to put solar on your roof, how are you going to pay for the power system for industry and commercial use? So, you know, it, there's, there's a balance to being, you know, maybe in villages and towns and in isolated locations where you have a grid issue already, and they could be a microgrid. But doing it in large urban um, conurbations like Belfast or Norway, um, you know, or Bangor, whatever, you or Lisbon, it, it probably isn't the, the fully correct solution because already you have a nice grid there in those locations. But maybe going to Enniskillen and looking at a town like that and saying, oh, let's make this a microgrid, that could be interesting. Because um, what you're doing is you're negating the cost of grid reinforcement of up upgrading and updating um, the, the transmission lines in that area. And then you're avoiding your areas of outstanding natural beauty because people don't want power lines going through areas of outstanding natural beauty. So isolated towns and rural villages, they're probably a better location for your microgrid. Um, and, you know, commercial parks where you could put in maybe some wind turbines. When you go to Spain, you know, actually in Northern Ireland, there's far more standalone commercial auto production and um, wind turbines than there would be in the Republic of Ireland and parts of England. You, you'd see it much more here in Northern Ireland and we've been very good at it. Um, but the issue again is who's going to pay? How do we incentivize it? Um, we've already seen with um, the supports for electric vehicles, the uptake is predominantly by a certain sector in society. So the people who buy electric vehicles will tend to be um, better educated and have more money. They're from a different class, social class, than the people who are heavily dependent on a car that may be 10 years old or eight years old and is a petrol or diesel engine. Um, and they're the people who are more affected by the increases that were seen recently in, in, in energy, the fuel costs. So 
that's the thing. People, the, you know, how does the government support it? How do they incentivize it? Do they give a tax break? Do they pay people to do it? But if you pay people to do it, then what will happen is you push up, you artificially inflate the price of the installation and the equipment. So, you know, trying to find the best solution is always the hardest solution. And that's the work that I do. I look at, and recently I've been looking for, at, um, you know, incentives for renewable energy up to 2050 to support the Northern Ireland Energy Strategy for the Department for Economy. Um, and I just finished the report there last week. Um, and, you know, you could do nothing, but actually do nothing is probably the worst approach because you're actually going to end up paying a carbon charge because actually the cheapest solution is always the cheapest equipment. And in this case, it would be natural gas. So um, wind, solar, CHP, energy storage, what way do we need to innovate the system? And the people who are missing really from the debate is the Her Majesty's, um, it's HMRC. So it's the revenue commissioners. So they're the people who need to really be more active in this. It's great to have an energy regulator. It's great to have the Department for Economy, but actually it's the tax take is really the key and the killer in this. How do we get to 2050? So how, how you know, the price of, of fuel is going to go up in the next budget probably because they're going to increase the tax. So if they increase the tax, then there's more money coming into the pot. But then how do we support the renewables? Is that money going to go to the renewables? You know, is there enough money there? Because, it, you know, to run the roads in Northern Ireland, it's about a half a billion a year. That's how much it is to run the roads in Northern Ireland. You know, um, so and another thing as well is, look, you look at public transport, Northern Ireland, um, in terms of vehicle ownership, um, our trips are quite small, like 59 percent, 50 odd percent of people in Belfast commute by car to work. So even though there's um, we have around 350,000 smart passes in Northern Ireland, 330,000 of those are held by elderly people, but they're not the people who are commuting into work every day. It's younger people and students. So if you want to get people out of their cars and get them on public transport, maybe they're the people who should get the pass and should be incentivized to use public transport to reduce those transport trips. So again, there's a, there's a lot of politics. You can't escape the politics um, no. in terms of uh, talking about a transition to a clean. I mean, even though we began by talking about how to generate clean electricity, that's easy. You're almost with, within a two steps. You're into the politics of the situation. So that, that, that actually, the technology exists. It's proven. We know what we need to do as engineers, but there's no business case for what we need to do in some of the situations. And the other issue is when the government, when governments change, and when governments come in and out, and politicians come in and out, and we have different energy plans, they have different interests in different local things. It's parish pump politics. Whether you're in England, Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland, or in the Republic of Ireland, it's parish pump politics. So, um, you know, you could have one, one MEP or one, one MP or one TD, you know, or one councillor who has an interest in his own area because it's about his vote. Um, and then the other issue is some of the, the documents that are policy documents, they're actually written on a four or a five year cycle that really, you know, it doesn't take into account. They should be really written on a 10 year cycle, a four or a five year cycle for some of these. Um, and they should be up updated maybe every two or three years. So we need to be more proactive. You know, if you look at onshore wind in Northern Ireland at the moment, we're coming to the end of the life cycle of some of those wind farms. They've been around 10 years. They maybe have another five or six years. But actually, 
over that 10 years, technology has improved vastly again. And we have larger turbines. Unsure what we could do, like they're doing in Germany, like they're doing in France, like they're doing in the Netherlands, they're repowering. So what they do is they go to an old wind farm, they take out the turbines that are there and they put in a new, a new larger turbine. But the issue is noise. So noise and neighbours. Um, and of course, you have some environmental impacts in terms of birds. Um, and some people, what you find actually is on many you know, occasions is the people who are from the countryside, country people, they're quite happy to have a wind farm near them. Um, they see it as a job and a revenue stream for if they're a farmer. But actually, it's people who come from urban areas who move into the countryside are the first object because they actually they moved into the countryside in the first place to get away from noise, to get away from people, to be in the countryside and not to be looking at the wind turbine. So, you know, offshore wind is going to play a huge part. Um, actually, probably the British Isles could probably supply maybe 20, 30, 30 percent of um, energy, electricity needs to the European Union. And I think for us in Northern Ireland, that's a great opportunity for the rest of the UK and um, for GB, England, Scotland and Wales. It's a massive opportunity for the Republic of Ireland. It's indeed huge. It could be part of the European supergrid. What we need really is if Europe wants to hit its 2050 targets, it's for Europe and the power grid and the commissioners in Europe to turn around and say, well, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to do something like they did in, in the BETA, which is the British Electricity Trading and Tariff Arrangements. So that's the, the GB power system. And we're going to do a contract for differences, which is a, 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 a European contract for differences for wind, offshore wind around the British Isles. And they could do the same in Spain, Italy, Portugal and North Africa for solar. And, 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 and do another CFD. And that would actually support once you get the technology going and after the first 10 years, nine years, it'll actually pay for itself. You know, so um, there are the sort of things that we need. And actually, it'll be a massive employment opportunity for Northern Ireland, for the British Isles. Um, North America would be, you know, we'd be ahead of the curve. We already seen what the offshore industry has done in, 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 um, in England. Scotland is heading the same way. They're ahead of us. Um, China, Asia, Japan is looking at it. Um, you know, and the good thing about offshore wind is you can put it cl close to the load, if you know what I'm saying. So it can, it can go near large cities. So Belfast is a coastal city, Dublin, you know, Liverpool. So all of those, and then shipping it over to France on the inter interconnectors to France. You know, it's a massive opportunity for manufacturing jobs. Like my dream is to see what they have in Hull, in Belfast, in, in um, down in um, in the docks, you know, to see that down there and, and the shipyard would be a massive manufacturing facility for offshore wind turbines. Um, there was some activity when they were doing um, a, wind, a wind farm in the Irish Sea, but that was only assembling. And it would be, we, we have the skills in Northern Ireland, we're massive in, in, in engineering, we're massive in manufacturing and you know, it would be a shame for us. And we have the best port on the island of Ireland for it. We, uh, you know, I'm a Cork woman, but I can say hands on heart, Cork is in the right port. It's too far away. It's 17. It would take the distance from Cork to Waterford is nearly the distance from Dublin around past Belfast again. So that's the, the distance. So in terms of shipping and moving the turbines, servicing the turbines, Belfast port is the best location on the island of Ireland. 
a real uh, something for the, the politicians to take away, I think, and think about. You know, we could be uh, leaders in this field. Yeah. I was also reading a little bit about um, floating wind farms, which they've, they've started to look at. Is that what is that? Well, they've been doing research in the EU for that for the last 10 years. Right. And um, there's been a few big sort of projects. There's the high wind project. It's, 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 I suppose it's the, the holy grail of offshore wind. So in terms of industry, what we talk about is we talk about maybe 50 kilometers offshore and 50 meters deep. And offshore wind floating um, is that kind of, it's that kind of getting out to that kind of boundary limit. Um, a number of the big um, companies are heavily invested in it. Um, they see it working. Um, can I put it in context for you? An offshore wind turbine in terms of size, the rotor and the blade radius, not the diameter, so the, the, the radius would be the same length, if not longer, than a Boeing 747. That's an offshore wind turbine. And when we were onshore, typically the turbines are 2.5 megawatts, 2 megawatts, 3 megawatts, you know, you get bigger ones. Offshore, they're now looking at turbines 10 megawatts, 15 megawatts, 20 megawatts. So that's higher than the Petronas Towers. That's the kind of thing you're talking about. A major large scale engineering. Yeah. And with all the, the, the work and the jobs that, that, that go with that. Huge and all the steel, you know, it's all welding, you know, you have the drive shaft. So it's it's mechanical jobs, it's electrical jobs, it's civil engineering jobs for the floating, um, it's shipping jobs. It's a huge industry. And I think, you know, with our history in Northern Ireland and in Belfast in shipping, we should be you know, standing out there, waving around and getting action, you know? Well, let's hope uh, there's some of the political decision makers who are watching us wave, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, through this uh, this podcast. We should be um, like Hull. It's it's reinvigorated Hull in, in England and we should be we should be there. There you are. There's, a, there's the model to go and have a look at. Uh, maybe I'll have to take my camera over and have a look, make a wee film over there. But... Uh, in the meantime, that's been very thought-provoking and interesting, and um, I look forward to picking up some of those themes, perhaps especially the political side of things. That's obviously seems to be key and important. I'll As I said, and I keep on reiterating, the, the engineering is no issue. The only issue with engineering is regulation. And when I mean regulation, I mean to do with even simple things like, you know, um, a guidance document for an electrician. That's the weakness, and that's the only issue in engineering. We have all the technology. The other issue is the business case, but the business case can only come if there's proper political willpower behind it, because investment will only follow when a business man or a business woman are guaranteed a return on their investment, and that their numbers stack up. There you are. I think you've given me plenty of clues to be uh, asking and digging into for later episodes of this series. So. In the meantime, uh, Dr. Aoife Foley, thank you very much. No Many thanks to Dr. Aoife Foley of the School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Follow us on social media at QUB Engagement. And for more in this series, visit our website, go.qub.ac.uk slash charter hyphen podcast. Or subscribe to Queen's University Belfast, the Charter Podcast, on all the main podcast platforms.